Good morning, everyone. Would you turn in your Bibles with me to the um, book of Ephesians, chapter 4. Ephesians, chapter 4. We've been in a series of messages here over the last several weeks on the church matters. Uh, Pastor uh, Tim and Pastor Doug got an opportunity on the first week to talk about church in general, and they gave you an overview of the first part of Ephesians. Um, Pastor Tim uh, preached last week on um, evangelism and sharing that gospel message. Uh, this week I have the opportunity to talk on discipleship and what it means to grow in Christ. I know it's not one of those uh, fancy topics, but it's one of those topics that is so essential uh, to the church at large. Um, I was thinking about this, about uh, Yesterday, I came and I noticed something happened in my life that it was like, I don't even know why I just did what I did. You ever get to that place? It's like a reaction out of, out of emotion. I know the right thing to do. Chose not to do it. And acted like a child. <laughs> it's interesting that uh, Paul is going to talk about children, talk about how we need to grow in maturity and how we can um, grow to become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So hopefully you don't have those childlike moments like I did yesterday, uh, but from the laughter I guess you do. And um, hopefully this morning we're going to find out how the Apostle Paul and greater than that, the Lord Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit tells us how we can grow in the faith. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, it says this, I, therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Okay, so if, I, if you miss me for the rest of the service, um, there is a key point on the, on the top of the outline. Um, if you didn't get an outline, you can grab it at the end. And this is, in essence, a uh, little long sentence, but this is the theme of what we want to be able to see happening in discipleship and growth in Christ. A healthy church body has settled biblical convictions and discernment. Truth wedded to love. A plan to aid in maturing others in Christ-likeness and a process in which every believer is serving in the ministry. Hear that with me. A healthy church is a, has settled biblical convictions and discernment, truth wedded to love, a plan to aid in the maturing of others in Christ's likeness and a process in which every believer is serving in the ministry. That is what I believe is the heartbeat of discipleship, and that is what I'd love to be able to see us continue here at the church and at the chapel. There are four themes that we're going to be looking at this morning. First, we start with unity, and then we go to some level of diversity, then Paul talks about maturity, and then he finally talks about ministry. So let's start with the first uh, part, unity, and it picks up in the first six verses, which I've already read. Paul says, I therefore am a prisoner for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, if you took the time to read through the first three chapters over the last several weeks as we've begun this um, overview of Ephesians, you know that Paul is writing this book from prison. It's one of the prison epistles. And he has already told the congregation in chapter 3 that he's in prison. So now he is reminding them again that he's in prison. You ever wonder why that may be? Why is it that Paul reminds them that for the second time that I'm in prison? And I think, I think the reason is that he gently wants to remind them that Christianity is costly. It, it doesn't come cheaply. It's not easily. Peter, um, Paul is telling us that life in Christ is never going to be easy. He says that he is a prisoner for the Lord Jesus Christ. So what he's talking about is this, that the gospel message that he has been commissioned to give he is now in prison. He is in chains because of that. He has now been in prison because of that. And years down the road, he is actually going to die because of the gospel. I really appreciate a number of you, all of you, for being here on a very icy morning to hear the gospel. But can you imagine what it would be like to be in chains for the gospel, to be in prison for the gospel, and to perhaps lose your life for the gospel He's talking about discipleship. He begins with the fact that it's costly. He says, therefore, and you're familiar with the fact that he, when he says, I, therefore, whenever he makes that transition of using the word therefore, he is moving from something that was happening before to something that's happening now. He begins this transition from belief to behavior, from creed to conduct, from doctrine and duty. He makes a transition from the faith to faithfulness. He has in the first three chapters been telling us about what it means to have the faith, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he says, how do you practically live out the gospel? And that is what we do in growing in discipleship. So Christianity is very costly. He uses this word here and he says, look, it says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk, walk, when you think of the word walk, I want you to consider the fact that walk is a daily conduct. It's a, it's a manner of life. It's the way you live out your life. It's the way you move out. I move about, I go about in a certain way. Walking is an action. It's something that we do continuously. As you're walking, you're making some steps forward. So when Paul uses this word, and he uses it word, this word oftentimes in his books, he is talking about the walking, and he says that there's an action that you need to do. That in Christianity, Christianity is not passive. Christianity is not sitting back and waiting for God to all of a sudden strike you and all of a sudden you're mature. Christianity is about an action that you are moving out. He brings us to faith by his sovereign work in salvation, but our sanctification is this joint work where his Holy Spirit is working in our lives, and we are working out that salvation. So walking is an action. Walking is a way of life. It's continuous. It's ongoing. It's not just I read my Bible once this week. It is something that I need to be doing consistently through my life. And a walk is about advancement. It's about growth and it's about progress in your life. You should be able to see in your life that last year and this year, you know, we make these resolutions at the beginning of the year. Um, they never seem to make sense to me. Because resolutions are just temporary promises that we're making. What we should be aiming for is a level of faithfulness in our lives that there is so, such consistency, such follow-through, that I'm doing this consistently through my life. I don't have to make new resolution, res resolutions at the beginning of the year. 
Because I'm following through in this pattern in our lives obediently. Walk. But then he goes and he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy. Well, what does that word worthy mean? It's interesting to find that that word worthy means to have equal weight. It means to be in balance. And what, what Paul is arguing here is this, that you've been given such an amazing gift in the gospel. You've been given such an amazing gift in, your, in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that the King of kings, the Lord of lords, has left heaven and come here to become a man and to bear your sin and to die in your place. And now he has given you life and he's given you hope and he's given you joy. And that opportunity that you have right now is for you to share with other people. It's to manage to walk worthy of the gospel. It's living out who you are in Christ. I guess I wonder if somebody were walking behind you. I think there's this song by Steve Green. Um, oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. I don't know if you know that song. Um, but all who come behind us Find us faithful. If somebody is walking behind you in the steps that you're following, would they be following in those steps to see Christ? Would they be seeing Christ in your attitudes? They didn't see it in my attitude yesterday. See it in your actions, in your way of life. Those steps moving towards Christ-likeness in and through our lives. I wonder, do you know who you are? That if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're alive. If you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've been brought near to God. You are friends with God. You are secure. You are loved. You're a child of the King. You're a changed person. You're a new creation. You are forgiven. You are reconciled. You are accepted. You are graced. You are forgiven. You are gifted. You are sealed. You're redeemed. You're one with Christ. You are holy. You're a priesthood. You're justified. You're free. And is your life matching that? It's mine. Paul is urging us to walk in a manner worthy that lines up with that. In a manner that your calling and your conduct should be coming together. Whether you are a teenager or a young person or an older person, our lives and our, lit, our message should be lining up so that people should be seeing in our lives something radically different. The only reason we're here is that we live differently so others can come to Christ. That's the only reason. Are we doing that as a body? Are we doing that as a people? Well, well, Paul tells us how we walk in this way, and he gives us a series of characteristics in doing life together. He says that we do life together in a series of ways of responsibilities, that you have a calling and you've been called to hope, you've been called to be blameless, you've been called to good works, but you've been called to allow your calling to come out in your conformity and your relationship with others. Well, how do we do life together? I won't take too much of this because I know Pastor Tim is probably going to get into this a lot next week, but the first thing he tells us is in verse 2, we do life together through humility. Humility. Humility is the opposite of pride. Humility, pride is this overestimation of ourselves, and it's a lower estimation of God and others. And what we do with pride is it promotes disunity. It promotes disharmony. What humility does is it relies on our dependence upon God. 
And as we look to God and as we look to others, we find our help and healing. It esteems others as better than ourselves, and it is concerned for the welfare of other people. That is what humility is. I guess I wonder if that sounds like you. The ultimate example of humility is who? The Lord Jesus Christ. And he left heaven, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, left heaven and he became a babbling baby for you and for me. And if he wasn't humble enough to become a babbling baby, he put himself under the law that he created. He put himself under the authority of sinful parents. And then he went to a cross to bear sin, which he did not deserve. Such humility. But the humility, if we're going to have unity in this church, it starts with humility, but then it moves to the next thing that Paul says. It's got to move to gentleness. Gentleness. Gentleness is considering others more important than yourself. Gentleness is the fruit of the Spirit. Now, some people think of gentleness as weakness or timidity. That's not it. Gentleness, I like this definition, is strength under control. Gentleness is strength under control. It's, mind, it's mild spirit. It's the fact that I am willing to yield my rights. It's the opposite of self-assertion. It's the opposite of harshness or rudeness. There were two people in the Bible that this word gentleness was used for, and it was the Lord Jesus Christ and Moses. And I wonder, would anybody say that you are a gentle person? The third quality he brings up here that we need to have if we're going to grow in Christ-likeness is not only humility and gentleness, but humility leads to gentleness, and gentleness leads to the next one, patience. Patience means that I am long-tempered. It is the outgrowth of humility and gentleness. It endures even in times of adversity. It is a level of self-restraint. It's patience in accepting what other people do to me. It's not seeking revenge. It's making allowances for other people's shortcomings. It's not flying off the handle. If God is willing to suffer long for me and for you, if he is willing to be patient and caring and kind for you and for me, shouldn't we be that for other people? And if we're going to have a, a congregation of unity, it starts with humility. It moves out in gentleness, and now it comes out in patience. And then the fourth element that he says here is that they bear with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love is putting up with one another. Putting up with one another in love, it's being unselfish. It's lovingly dealing with other people in the midst of their own weaknesses and failures. Paul says that all of this is done in love. Go back with me a couple of verses in chapter 3, verse 17. And he says this, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you may be what? Rooted and grounded in what? Love. And so what Paul just prayed at the end of chapter 3, he wants to see become evidenced in your life that you are a lover because you bear with people. Yes, they will know that we are Christians by our love, but you know what? They will really know that we are Christians by our forgiving love, our forbearing love. That when somebody slights me, do I fly off the handle? Or am I the type of person in humility, in gentleness, in patience, bear with them and show them love? Paul says that in verse 3 that we need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. 
It's interesting that he says unity here. This unity is not created by Pastor Tim or Pastor Doug or the elders. It is created not by the chapel. This unity and this peace is created by who? The Holy Spirit. It's the bond of the Holy Spirit. He achieves it. It's not created by the church. It's not created by us. What we are urgently called to do is to maintain it, to preserve it, to protect it, that in all that I do, I am supposed to be, and all that you do, we're supposed to be moving towards unity and peace in our homes, in our marriages, in our families, and in this church so that we can reflect the unity and peace that the Trinity have. And the unity and peace and love that they have together, we are supposed to be evidencing that in our lives. Christ has bought us this peace. He has kept us in this peace, and now we're called to live out this peace. St. Francis of Assisi had this prayer. He said, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hate, may I bring love. Where there's offense, may I bring pardon. May I bring union in the place of discord. I pray that that would be our prayer today. Well, well, Paul starts by saying that if you're going to grow in Christ-likeness, this is how you characterize it. This is how you live it out. But then he gives you the why in the next section of verses here. He says the reason why we have this unity is found here. He says that there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. If you just heard what I just read, seven times I used the word one. He used the word one seven times. There are four of those times that he is talking about our salvation. There are three of those times that he is talking about the Trinity, the Holy Spirit first, then the Lord Jesus Christ, and then the God and Father of all. Four times he uses the word all. So it's not just some of us, it's all of us that are in this opportunity. The first three deal with the work of the Holy Spirit. The next three deal with the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the last one points to the Father. He says that we're one body. Um, uh, Pastor Tim has been talking about this consistently, about the fact that we're a body. He spoke about the idea of the visible versus invisible last time. The fact is that... um, We sit here in a congregation. I look out in a number of people that are here. I am hoping and praying that the vast majority, if not all of you, have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I don't know. Within this body, for those that have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that's the body that he's talking about here. He's not talking about the chapel. He's talking about all the people in every church that's around this world right now that is worshiping today, that have trusted in the Son, believed in the Son. You are part of a body. I, I'm excited about the fact that when we get to heaven, there aren't going to be denominations. You know, There aren't going to be the Reformed over here and then the uh, Presbyterians over there and the Baptists over there and the Pentecostals over there. We're going to be one. One. One body, one body. It's interesting that he also uses the idea of body because he doesn't talk about um, he doesn't talk about building a machine. Like if you take a machine, you get up this part and this part and this part, and you put it together. He's talking about something that's organic. He's talking about that something that's living. That if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are part of the body of Christ. And that in this local body, 
what God is doing is he brought you here for a purpose. It's not by mistake that you're here. And that God wants to use you in this ministry. We'll talk more about that in a moment. One body, one spirit, the Holy Spirit. He's the one who awakens us to sin. He is the one that calls us, regenerates us, sanctifies us, indwells us. He is the author of the scripture from which we're preaching today. One body, one spirit, one hope. The only hope that we have is Christ. All I have, we just sang that, all I have is Christ. It's the one thing that no one else in this world has. Those that are out in this world that are looking for hope and healing are actually focusing their lives on a wish. They're wishing and they're hoping that God will take them to heaven. They don't know for certain. What we have, if you're in Christ, is a sure and a certain salvation. That Christ rose from the dead and he is alive today. And if you trust in him, you are alive today. And that one hope is the hope that this world needs to have. One body, one spirit, one hope. Now he goes to the next three about the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, one Lord. Jesus Christ is the Savior and Lord and head of the church. One faith. This word faith has gotten robbed today in our society. We, um, we talk about faith being uh, about a feeling or or faith about an individual belief, but that's not what he's talking about. He's saying one faith is the objective faith that we have, the gospel message, the gospel of our salvation, that Christ has died for you and is risen for you, and that is the message that we have, one faith that we stand under. Now, there may be people that are so, um, worshiping right now in different denominations, but if they stand under the one faith, we are part of the one body together. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. It's the outward sign that you have come to faith in Christ. August 14th, uh, 1992, my wife slipped this ring on my finger. And what she did was she pledged to me to be my wife for life. And I pledged to her to be my husband, her husband for life. Now that ring doesn't change anything. I take the ring off. I'm still married, but it is an outward sign of this inward reality. Baptism is the same thing. It is an outward sign so that when a person trusts in Christ, they go into the waters of baptism to symbolize to everyone else that they've trusted in Christ. One baptism. And then finally, he says, one father of all. He says, father of all, all those who are believers. He's over all, he's sovereign. He's through all, he's omnipotent. And he's in all, he's omnipresent. That is unity. And that is what God wants to bring out in our lives. But then he goes to this level of diversity. Jump with me in verse 7. It says this, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of the uh, gift of Christ, or Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, this comes from Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now when somebody big comes into your town, what most people tend to do is they throw a big party for that person that's coming into town. And what they do is they bring these gifts to the person, right? And so when this guy comes into town and this person comes into town, we want to try to give gifts, give him a nice dinner and give him gifts because we want to celebrate the fact that he's here. What Christ does, he turns it completely upside down that when he comes, he's not looking to get gifts from us. You know what he wants to do? He wants to give gifts to you. And as he's coming triumphantly, he says, I'm giving you gifts. And as I look out at this congregation, the many different faces and the many different ages, 
The fact of the matter is this. The youngest in our congregation to the oldest in our congregation, if you trust in God, he has given you at least one gift. To be used for what? His glory in this body. And so he uses those gifts and he talks about the gifts that he's given. He talks about the fact that he has given gifts. And then jump down with me to verse 11 because there are gifts that he gives to the whole congregation, but then he gives gifts specifically to certain leaders. He says in verse 11, and he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and teachers. And what he does is there's some informal gifts that are given to the whole body. And then there's some formal gifts that are given to those that are in certain levels of leadership. Now, he talks about the apostles, and the apostles are restricted to those who saw the risen Christ. I I know there's some churches today that they have the Apostle James up there speaking today. Um, They're not really an apostle. Um, The apostle means to be a sent one, but biblically, an apostle is somebody who actually saw the risen Christ. So the 12 that were there, and Peter and Paul, who saw the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, We're the only confirming apostles that we have. But we speak today from the apostles, his word, and then it moves to the prophets. Now, the prophets are interesting because the prophets are a group of people that either foretold what was going to happen in the future or they foretold what was um, preaching out of the word. We don't have anyone that is doing this foretelling today because we have the finished word of God. But we do have people that will stand in pulpits this morning and foretell, speak out the word of God and tell of what God is doing in their lives. The third are evangelists. There are some people in our congregation that are just wired to evangelize. Wired to sit down with somebody who doesn't know Christ and open the scriptures to them and then just challenge them. I, there's some of you that have that gift and you just, you just can't help it huge and then there are others who are pastors and teachers those that shepherd and instruct the flock each one of these formal gifts are given to do what verse 12 to what equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of christ and he tells us how you were built up watch this three things until we attain the unity of the faith the knowledge of the Son, and reach maturity in life. Okay, let's start with the first one. Knowledge of, I'm sorry, the first one, unity of the faith. Now, we were just talking about the fact that when he uses faith in this thing, he's not talking about this subjective thing, about a personal belief. What he's talking about is the gospel. That as we come together, that we can be unified in what the gospel message is. And as we learn and work with one another and grow, we could actually start to see that that gospel message becomes the foundation for which we do every aspect of this ministry. Everything that we do should be wired back to that gospel message that we are proclaiming the wonderful work and the person in the Lord Jesus Christ. But not only is it unity in the faith, but the second thing he said is knowledge of the Son. I found it interesting this week as I went through this word knowledge. Now, when you think of the word knowledge, oftentimes you probably think of just head knowledge, you know, information. That, you know, I'll sit in a Sunday school class or I'll sit in preaching and I will get a bunch of knowledge, facts. But that's not what he's talking about here. If you go back to the Greek here, it is talking about an intimate 
connection, an intimate relationship with Christ. That you are not just learning information about Christ, you are becoming transformed by Christ because you are connecting to Christ. And maturity in the faith is not only united in the faith, the gospel, but is growing in intimacy with Christ. And that comes out that you start to measure yourself to look more and more like Christ. You know, in our home, we had a little wall there where you would start to mark the height of, of the kid, right? And as the kids started to grow, you know, you would start to see that they were growing uh, taller and taller. And the measure that you would use in Christianity is Christ. How am I looking as I measure up step by step? So he talks here about the fact that, one, there's unity in the faith. Two, each one of us have some level of diversity. You've been given some gift and that God wants to use that gift in your life. Three, he wants to bring you to maturity. Look with me here because he, he talks interestingly about the fact that if that's what a mature person is, united in the faith, knowledge of the Son, growing to be more like Christ, he says in verse 14 something interesting. So that we stop or we, uh, that we may no longer be what? Children. Children. Stop being a kid. See, I needed, I needed somebody to say that to me yesterday. Stop being a kid. Okay, you're going to tell me now? <laughs> what is a kid? A kid is immature. A kid is unstable. And a kid is vulnerable. Let's start with the first one. A kid is immature. Every single one of us who come into faith in the Lord Jesus Christ come into this life as a child. Outside of Adam and Eve, every person that was born in this world was born through a womb. And they came out as a ugly looking kid. Well, nah. <laughs> and a babbling baby. None of us came out speaking and singing great words. None of us came out able to change our diaper on our own. None of us came out making breakfast on our own. We all came out as kids. But for some reason, that's okay physically, but for some reason, we believe that in the church that we shouldn't have kids. We got kids. There's some who have just trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ recently, and you're still a child. There's a level of immaturity. There's nothing wrong with that. But what we have in the physical realm is we have parents that come along or guardians that come along to nurture you and nurture you in that life. And that's the same thing that we have here in the church. You've been given informal people and formal gifts to serve one another to see that ministry. Stop being a kid. But not only is there immaturity, but there's instability. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones had a series of uh, interesting points uh, on this section. He talked about a kid. And he says that a kid tends to lack self-control. You ever notice that? But a kid can react excessively and violently. You know, it's like, I need it now! And they react excessively and violently, and they're screaming and yelling. And then all of a sudden, what happens? You give it to them, and what happens? Calm down. Completely calm. A kid can go from one extreme to the other. This is the greatest gift in the world. I love it. I can't help it. Oh, this is great. And then a week later, I don't even know where it is. <laughs> it's gone. 
So kids lack self-control. Kids are, react excessively and violently. Kids go from one extreme to the other. And all of this leads us to ask whether we are manifesting the characteristics of a child. Are you manifesting immaturity? Are you manifesting instability in your life? Is your life a series of constant motion or agitation? Do you have a tendency to react violently to different respects and aspects? Is there a lack of discipline in your life, a lack of self-control? All of that is a sign of a kid, stopping a kid. Immaturity, instability, and then lastly, vulnerability. The third fact that he tells us here in the scripture is the fact that a kid is vulnerable. He says here that in verse 14, so that we no longer be children, tossed and fro by the waves in stability, and then carried along by every wind of doctrine, by the cunning of human cunning, by the craftiness of human deceits. What he is saying in essence is that you are vulnerable to falsehood. Just because you have been brought to faith by God and just because you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior doesn't mean that you got it all together. You need to be taught. It's kind of like the kid who says, I can do it, I can do it, and you know that they can't, but I can, I can, I can. And sometimes as parents, we have to let them do it. Uh, other times we wouldn't. If you put cereal, cereal and arsenic in front of a baby, they have absolutely no discernment. They're very vulnerable. As a parent, you would never put arsenic in front of your child, right? You would remove that and say, I'm going to remove that because I don't want you to have that poison. Well, in the faith, immaturity leads to vulnerability. We're vulnerable to false teaching. Some of us don't like false, uh, we don't, uh, we yield to false teaching because we're ignorant. We think we know it all. Some of us yield to false teaching because we just dislike being taught. We're not very submissive. We don't like to sit under teaching or preaching. Some of us will yield to false teaching because we like something new. It, I don't like the old stuff. Can't we do something new? We want something exciting, something that's new, entertaining. Some of us open ourselves up to false teaching because we're pretty lazy. We don't study the word. Some of us yield ourselves to false teaching because we're forgetful. We forget what God has done for us. Some of us will yield ourselves to false teaching because we're impatient. And some of us will yield ourselves to false teaching because we're pretty arrogant. I don't know if any of those sound like you. Unfortunately, some of them sound like me. The two things that are essential for all of us, we need to know that we're children who are growing. And the second is that we need to know that we're in danger unless we put ourselves under leadership that is going to help us and grow us into the faith. And that all moves to the last thing. Unity leads to diversity, which leads to maturity, which leads to the ministry, the ministry. He says here in verse 15, he says, rather do what? Speaking the truth in what? Love. How the ministry here at the chapel and the ministry in any Bible-believing church should be to grow people in discipleship, to grow people in Christ-likeness, and you do that by speaking the truth. I was sharing in my Sunday school class earlier that um, a lot of people take this verse and they pull it out of context. 
and they say that you need to speak honestly with people, which is true, or you need to speak truthfully to people, which is true, and you need to do that in love. But that's not what, the, what Paul's getting at here. He says, rather speaking the truth. What is he talking about? The gospel. He is saying that you start to learn the gospel and love the gospel and now you start to live the gospel and you start to share the gospel message. Speak that gospel message which binds us together in unity. Speak that out in our lives. Is that what you're doing today? It means to hold on to the truth. It means to have settled convictions. It means to grow in discernment. It is the actual contrast to the false teachers who are speaking lies and loving themselves. And he says to do it all in love. I don't know about you, but have you ever run into somebody who speaks truth but doesn't do it very lovingly? It's like gets in your face and it's like you know what they're telling you is right, but it's like I don't like how you said it to me. Right? And then there's some other people who are very loving and gracious, but you'll never get anything from them, right? You'll never get any truth from them. And, and what Paul is arguing and what the Holy Spirit is arguing is this. We need to have truth wedded to love. Uh, John, James Montgomery Boyce used that phrase, truth wedded to love. That it, there's a balance of truth and grace, truth and love that just becomes so apparent in this congregation and so apparent in our lives. The thing that excites me is this last thing I want you to consider. He says in verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What he is saying is this, that this whole body, the chapel at Warren Valley, will start to become a more mature person when each one of you who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord Savior, use your gifts in this ministry and we're all working together whether it's informal gifts or formal gifts, whether it's upfront gifts or behind the scene gifts that you have, that you're using your gifts, not holding them selfishly, but you're using those gifts to help other people and to let the gospel message go out. Can you imagine what this place would look like if we started to do that? Now, I know it's not true here, but uh, most churches, 90% of the work is done by 10% of the people. Why can't we see 90% of the work done by 90% of the people? Why can't we see that every single one of you who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ move from just being a visitor in this church and attending this church, that you move to a place where you're involved in this church? That you're not just coming here on Sunday mornings for service on time, but coming here for Sunday school, adult Sunday school, and being here on time. And moving from being a visitor in this church to involved in this church to being trained by the leaders of this church. And then moving to a place where you start to assist in other ministries in the church that you're going to be using your gifts in the ministry in this church. And then maybe some of you are actually going to become leaders in this church. And that movement of seeing the gospel message doing a work in our lives and then through our lives. That would be our hope. The last thing I want you to consider is this. He begins this chapter, he ends this chapter with one word, love. Love is bookended here. He says love is essential in verse 2, the essence of the Christian life. And then he ends by saying that ministry is driven by love. And he says that Christian maturity and Christian ministry find its basis in love. A love for God and a love for others that changes our hearts. 
and changes our lives. Is that where you want to go today? Lord, I pray.